beginning in verse 1, a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let my eyes look with equity. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men by the words of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I've called upon you. For you will answer me, O God, incline your ear to me, hear my speech, wondrously show your loving kindness. O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand, from those who rise up against them, keep me as the apple of the eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me, to have closed their unfeeling heart, with their mouth they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He is like a lion that is eager to tear as a young lion lurking in hiding places. Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword, from men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. Whose belly you fill with your treasure, they are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness and I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the privilege of being able to come together this morning. To have been able to pray together, to be able to sing praises together, to be able to make common confession together, to Hear your word together. Father, in this moment, as we open our hearts and our minds to your truth, we know that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that it is like a fire that consumes. Father, we know that it will stand forever. Father, we know that it goes out and accomplishes the purposes that it is set out to do, and it does not return to you void. And so, Father, this morning... We pray that your spirit will do a great work in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives as we're conformed to the image of Jesus through participation together in your word. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, before we get started uh, properly in in Psalm 17, I just wanted to to make kind of a, a warning announcement. Some of you are very savvy people. And you read ahead because, you know, I'm just going from one psalm to the next. And a couple of you have asked about Psalm 18. Some of you are now curious because you've not read ahead. And you're wondering, why would anybody ask about Psalm 18? Because it has 50 verses. And the question that has been asked of me is, what are you going to do with Psalm 18? And my answer has been, I'm going to preach it. And they said, no, 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 no. Are you going to do it over two weeks? The answer is no. So next week we will cover all 50 verses of Psalm 18. Now, I promise to keep it short if you promise to eat your Wheaties. All right. So Psalm 17 this morning. Psalm 17. Jesus is our protection from evil. 
Jesus is our protection from evil. Notice in verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 17, there's a call for examination. I want to tell you that as I was preparing this, and any time that I've ever read Psalm 17, these first five verses make me incredibly uncomfortable. Because look at what David does here. First, David calls for God to hear his cry, which is not uncommon in the Psalms. It's a common theme in the Psalms for David to cry out, God, hear my cry, hear my voice, hear my prayer, hear my supplication. Not uncommon. That's a very good thing for all of us. That doesn't make me uncomfortable. So hear this just cause. Give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer. He, he calls out to God to hear him. And as he's calling out to God to hear him, David does something else altogether. He calls for God to examine his life. But he doesn't just call for God to examine his life. He calls to God to examine his life under the assumption that his life is pure enough for God to hear his cry in the first place. This is what makes me uncomfortable. Listen to what David says. Verse three. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you find Nothing. Now that translation, you find nothing, is, is a little more profound than that. You find no evil device or activity in me, is what he said. <laughs> I, I kid you not, when I was prepping for this, I, I read through that and I was kind of evaluating that. I just kind of slid my chair back away from the table and I'm like, I can't say that out loud in front of these people. Anybody who kind of sort of knows me knows you don't have to try my heart, visit me by night or test me for very long to find something. And David, in his prayer to God, says, God, test me, try me, take a deep look and see if you see evil in me. And the way that he's presenting it is you're not going to find it there. Wow. Wow. That's both encouraging and disheartening to me. It's disheartening because I don't ever actually feel that way about myself. There's never been, hear hear me this morning, friend. There's never been a time where I've prayed to God and I've started my prayer with God. You've searched me and there's nothing wrong with me today. Never, like never. Never even crossed my mind to pray like that. First of all, because it's never been true any time that I've ever prayed to God. So it's kind of disheartening. But it's also incredibly encouraging. Because, friends, it doesn't take long to evaluate and look at David's life to know that David knew he was a robust and profound sinner. So David is not banking on the perfection of the moment when he says what he says to God here. He's not banking on his performance. 
He's not banking on putting his best foot forward. He's not banking on pulling himself up by his bootstraps. He's not banking on, uh, you know, one of those really cool charts that they have in the warehouses. I have committed no sins today, and it's been two days in a row since I've committed a sin. He's not banking on that. That's not what he's working off of. David has embraced the overwhelming truth and reality that his righteousness is not his own. And when he approaches God in this way, when he asks God to test him and to examine him and to look deep within him, he is not asking God to see the perfection that he has produced in his own life. He is asking God to view him through the lens of the righteous gift that he has given him. Namely, God, you have made me righteous by your salvation. And when I come to you and when I pray to you, I don't want you to see the dirty hands and the corrupt heart that I have in myself. I want you to see the purity that you have supplied to me in your mercy and loving kindness. And friends, when I think of it this way, I get encouraged. Because even though I see myself as the abject sinner that I am. Praise be to God, he does not see me that way. Because nothing impure can come in the presence of God. And yet I can come into the presence of God moment by moment, day by day, even in the midst of my worst sinning. Why? Because when he sees me, he sees his son, Jesus's righteousness. And when he tests my heart, he sees the heart of Christ. And when he tests my mind, he sees the mind of Christ. And when he looks at my hands, he sees the hands of Christ. And when he gazes upon my feet, he sees the feet of Christ. And he welcomes me in and he gives ear to me. Not because I am righteous in and of myself, but because he has made me Righteous. And so when David prays this way, he is not being arrogant. He is not being boastful. He is not confused. He is giving glory to the transformational power of salvation that comes from being in the Lord. And notice that he informs us of this. In verse 4, as for the deeds of men, By the word of your lips. Where does David get all this confidence in his righteousness and his purity? Not in himself. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, by God's word, God's covenant, God's way, God's salvation, by your word, I have kept from the paths of the violent. By your word, my steps have held fast to your path. By your word, my feet have not slipped. He's giving all the glory to God above. All the hope of his righteousness is found in the work of the Lord himself. And friends, we know in the new covenant reality, we are now seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He has given us life and life abundantly. 
It's magnificent. And so he calls for God to examine him. Paul does the same thing in the New Testament. And after this acknowledgement of a righteous gift from God, he then makes the transition and he calls for God to protect him from evil in verses 6 through 13. God's protection against evil. Friends, we've said it a lot in the Psalms, but you know, repetition is the key to learning. I think that's one of the reasons why when you study the whole Bible regularly and consistently, you kind of walk away from it going, you know, that sort of said the same thing over and over and over again in just a few different ways. Like there's a lot of common themes, like it keeps repeating itself. It's because repetition is the key to learning. The Bible calls us sheep. Sheep are dumb animals. We don't need profound, deep things. We need basic, simple things over and over and over and over again. Hey, don't walk off the cliff. No, hey, really you don't walk off the cliff. You're getting really close to the cliff. Like, you know, this this is us. This is who we are. Stay in the pen. Wolves are bad. Pen is good. Like it's just over and over and over again. Repetition, repetition. And I know we've said this a lot, but he says it again here in verse six. God hears the cry of his people. You say, why do you have to keep saying that over and over again? Because how many times in your life have you prayed and you felt like you were talking to the ceiling and God was nowhere to be found? I know it's not just me. I know I'm not the only one. How many times have you from the depths of your heart cried out to the Lord and it felt like an empty echo chamber? You like David, God, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Why won't you hear me? Why won't you answer me? And there has to be a constant reminder from the scripture that God hears the cries of his people. Why? Because left to ourselves, we would believe that he's not listening sometimes. Because we pray and we pray and we pray and we cry and we weep and we suffer and we struggle and crickets. And we get like David and we start wondering where God is. Thankfully, in God's kindness to us, he reminds us repeatedly that he hears the cries of his people. Notice here in verse six, I have called upon you for you will answer me. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. He will hear you, Christian friend. He might not answer you the way you want him to, but he will hear you. Our God is not like the idols, having ears but not able to hear, having eyes but not able to see, for he sees and he hears all that is in his world. And it's fantastic. Incline your ear, hear my speech, and then notice what happens in verse 7. There is safety in God's right hand. Wondrously show your loving kindness, your salvific mercy. 
O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against them. Friends, there is safety in God's right hand. Now, I don't want to get into all of it today. Don't have time to get into all of it today. But a a very dear friend of mine that I studied at seminary with, he's gone on and he's pastoring, I believe, down in Florida right now. Named Dax Summer. Dax, if you're listening, shout out. He wrote his dissertation on the Hebrew metaphor of God's right hand as a picture of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when you go through and you read in the Old Testament, the language of God's right hand with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, this right hand of God. And the way that God interacted both in salvation of his people and judgment against his enemies with his strong, outreached right hand. You see Jesus all over that. Friends, there is safety in God's right hand. Why? Because who is it that is seated at the right hand of God? It is Christ Jesus himself. Wondrously, you have shown your loving kindness, that salvific mercy. Savior, now the languages of salvation, of those who take refuge in your or at your or from your right hand. Even David speaking in prophetic ways that he didn't even understand himself under the inspiration of the spirit. Declares to us from the old covenant scriptures that if you will place your trust in the glory and the strength and the work of Christ Jesus, you will wondrously experience safety and love from God. By the way, I know it's cloudy outside. That's a great place for people to be like, yes, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Um Wow, this is a tough crowd this morning. Man, Jesus saves and he keeps us and he redeems us. And, you know, I, I just don't, I don't understand, but okay. Um, maybe I'm the only one who needs to hear this today. I will say amen. That's cool. And who is he delivering us from? Notice what it says at the end of verse 7. He's delivering us His protection is against those who rise up against his people. Friends, there are two. No, not entirely accurate. There are three great enemies of the people of God. First is the powers and principalities of this dark age, the invisible enemy. I know that that bothers some people. We're far too sophisticated to believe in the invisible spiritual realm, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the devil's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. This is just the reality of it. Christ has made a spectacle of the powers and principalities, nailing the certificate of guilt to the cross when he died and was resurrected from the dead. He came and he plundered the strong man's house by binding him. There's lots of great metaphors for this spiritual war that is occurring in the invisible realms that we cannot see. There's these enemies. 
There are also the actual physical enemies that we can see. Those little antichrists, plural, that John talks about, who declare that Christ is not the Lord. Any who are in the king, uh, any who are in the kingdom of darkness still, those who are still in the city of man, those who have not repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are living as they want to live rather than living as they ought to live, who are being what they want to be rather than being what they ought to be, who are not properly reflecting the image of God in this world. They are enemies against the gospel and against Christ. And therefore, by extension, even if they are pleasant to us, are enemies against those things for which we stand. And God will protect us even against them. And then the great enemy, the greatest enemy, the most difficult enemy for those who are in the faith is the enemy that still dwells within each of us. That old dying man who's not died all the way yet. Who continues to whisper and call out to me in the depths of my heart. Go back to Egypt. Crawl back like a dog to its own vomit, to your own sin. Return to the land of plenty. Return to the place where things were cozy. Yes, you were a slave, but things were much easier for you in your slavery. Go back to where things were comfortable. And God, in his compassion and in his mercy, protects us from all three of those enemies. He protects me from the invisible powers of darkness. He protects me from the physical reality of those who stand against the gospel. And praise be to God, he protects me from myself. And David emphasizes this by pointing out a desire for God to keep him and to hide him. Keep me, verse 8, as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. There's no greater way to protect someone from an enemy than for them to be hidden from the sight of that enemy. Even those with no protective training whatsoever particularly parents, have an intuitive, protective response when something dangerous is about to happen to one of their small children. And you know what that motion is? I don't like the way this guy looks. I don't like how fast that car is going. I don't. You fill in the blank of whatever the thing is that you think is dangerous. And when you are a parent, a father or a mother, and you have a small child, your natural response is grab, shift, move, and hide. And there's a two-fold beauty to being kept and to being hidden. First, you are legitimately protected by God himself from the presence of that thing which is coming against you. Praise be to God for that. But do you know what other kindness God is doing to us when he hides us and he keeps us? The child that we protect, when we slide them behind us and we hide them, not only are they protected from the danger, they're protected from the emotional reality of having to engage the danger themselves. They don't see the danger and don't have nightmares about it. When God hides us in the shadow of his wings, he's not only protecting us in reality from the danger, he's also protecting us mentally, psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually from the danger that we're not even aware is there. He's so good to us. 
And David is begging God, God, do this for me. And then David makes a contrast and he talks about what the evildoers are like. These that are rising up against the people of God. He wants protection from verse nine. The wicked who despoil me. That word for despoil means to deal violently with someone in an effort to take all that is theirs. These wicked people are deadly. These deadly enemies that surround me. They have closed. Listen to this. They have closed off their unfeeling heart. Now, this is a really I'll just I'll, I'm so, this is too fun not to share with you. So just give me a little leeway for a second. NASB does a cool job of this, like making it flow well, because it would derail a lot of people to read like the better way to translate this. They have closed their unfeeling heart. Do you know what that actually says? They have kept all their fat parts for themselves. I love it. That's great. They have kept all their fat parts for themselves. Say, Philip, what in the world? In this culture... At this time, in this way, if you were able to, to, to have an increase of animals such that they became the fatted calf, if you will, the animal with a lot of fat on it, any of you who are robust meat eaters like I am know the best ribeye is the marbled ribeye. Why? Because the fat makes it taste good. And what have these people done to the world around them? They have produced some amazing and incredible and delicious things. And they've kept all their fat parts to themselves. I'm giving you the dry, lean, rubbery piece of meat that you have to chew on for days that you really don't want to eat, but at least they'll keep you alive. I'm keeping all the good stuff for myself. They have an emotional disconnect to where they do not care about the satisfaction and well-being of the people around them. They only care about the satisfaction and well-being of themselves. They've kept all their fat parts to themselves. That's what they've done. I just thought it was really funny that that's how it was worded in the original. They've kept all their fat parts to themselves. All the best is their own. They're proud speaking, it says in the next section of this verse 10. Their mouth, they speak proudly. And listen, they have surrounded us, verse 11, in our steps. They have set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. Like a lion, they're eager to tear us. Like a young lion, they're lurking in the hiding places. They are prepared to do violence and to have victory at any cost. And that's not just physical violence, emotional violence, spiritual violence, verbal violence. I don't care how we get there as long as when we get there, we win. That's the mindset that they have. Or the old adage, the ends justify the means. Christian friend, hear me this morning. That is not the attitude in the spirit of Christ. 
Well, as long as the end result is good, it doesn't really matter how we got there. No. Jesus cares about the process just as much as he cares about the result. And so David is expressing what these evildoers that he wants protection from are like. Those who are rising up against him. He wants to be hidden from them. And notice what he says here in verse 13. Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low, deliver my soul with from the wicked with your sword. We're going back to the word again. What is the sword of the spirit? Nothing but the word of God. David is trusting in the covenant word of the Lord. God will protect me and he will protect me through his revealed truth from the invisible enemy, from the expressed enemy and from the enemy within. And then as he closes in verses 14 and 15, there's a difference of perspective. And this is a very strange verse, very strange text. He wants deliverance from the sword of the Lord. From who? From men with your hand, O Lord. Back to the metaphor again of God's hand. From men of the world. Now listen to his description of men of the world. From men of the world whose portion is in this life. They are only satisfied with what they can experience in this life. They have no view to the invisible, eternal reality of the life to come. They're only satisfied with this life. And then he starts listing out the supreme disregard that they have for the kindness of God. Listen to this. This is what makes this text so strange. From the men of this world whose portion of this life... Whose belly you fill with your treasure. You can run through piles of scripture that talk about the blessing of God being needs met. And so God is actually doing that for these wicked people. Their needs are being met. They have work, they have job, they have food, they have provision. Of everything that they need. God is showing them overwhelming kindness. By allowing them to have all that they need. And so these wicked, these men of this world whose portion is in this life. They have extreme disregard for God's kindness. Extreme disregard that that that. That their needs have been met. Their bellies have been filled with the treasures of God. But then look, he, he moves to the next one. They are satisfied with children. You don't have to run through the scripture very long at all. To see how many verses talk about children being a blessing from the Lord. You know, your, your quiver being full, shooting your arrows out in the world. Like it's all over the place. All over the place. And so these wicked men who care nothing about God, they have all of their basic needs met. They have their bellies filled with the treasures of God. They have their house filled with healthy children. Another demonstration in the old covenant of God's blessing on them. God pouring kindness upon kindness on their head. 
And then he drops the cherry on top. Notice what he says. He says, and they leave their abundance to their babes. They do so well in this life that when they die, they have enough to meet the needs of the next generation of people who lived in their house, which is another indicator of God's blessing on someone. And yet these men care nothing about God. Their whole lives were marked by all of the covenantal kindnesses of God. And they did this. I don't care anything about what's past this. I just care that I got all the good stuff now. Friends, this is the testimony of Esau. What was wrong with Esau? He wanted the blessings of God, but not the God who blesses. His perspective was delight in this life only, not delight in the life to come. So what is the perspective then of the righteous? David lays it out for us. He says, I shall see your face. I shall behold your face in righteousness. And I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Friends. I've had a lot of conversations lately with people, and I'm glad that God has 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 made this provision happen to me in my life. And some of you who've been participating in the Wednesday study, we had a conversation about this just recently. The Christian life, as it's laid out for us in the scripture, is incredibly mundane and normal. One of the great problems with modern evangelical Christianity is we want the next best thing. I'm ready for all the cool Jesus stuff. I want the miracles and I want the, you know, list whatever you want. But I want it to be, you know, I want to I want to feel the presence of the Lord when I sing and when I pray. I want to hear God's voice and, you know, and I'm just going to wait around until God like shows me something really cool. And he writes like his name in the sand and I see Jesus's face in my bowl of Cheerios when I eat breakfast in the morning and like. Just a radical, cool experience. And I want to, no offense to my buddy David Platt, but I want to be like David Platt and be so moved to the missional reality of being a radical Christian that I stop eating French fries because I want to give that dollar and fifty to like reach people with Bibles and, uh, you know, Timbuktu someplace. Like I just want to be over the top for Jesus, man. You know what David wants? God, I want to see your face in righteousness. And when I wake up, I want to see your image on me. That's what I want. 
And if you don't give me anything else, if you don't even give me all the blessings that you gave the wicked man, if my belly is not full of your treasure and my house is not filled with children and I don't have so much when I'm done to leave it to them to secure their future, even if all of those things are devoid of me, I want to be able to look at you in your face and not die. And when I see my own face, I don't want it to look like my father, Adam. I want it to look like my savior, Jesus. That's what I want. And the perspective of the righteous man over against the perspective of the wicked man is profound. The wicked man wants his delight now. The righteous man wants to be able to sit at the table of the Lord later and feast with him then. Even if he has to go lean in between. Even if he has to suffer And even if he has to be persecuted and even if he has to be insulted and even if he has to revile and even if be reviled and even if he has to lay down rights and privileges and benefits and make sacrifices and to receive the short end of the stick so that the glory of God can receive the greatest abundance in his life. Whatever it takes, if I must be made less so long as Christ can be made more then that is the life that I long for. That is the perspective that I want to have. And if in the meantime, God provides all these other blessings, then so be it. But my longing is that I might see God in his face without fear of his wrath. And that when I see my face, it looks like the face of Jesus. That's it. That's what David wants. Christian, hear me this morning. That's what you should want. That's what I should want. I should long for God to protect me from evil. And to help me walk in righteousness. Whatever else happens after that doesn't really matter. And if that means I walk through a wilderness like the Israelites did most of my life. And God in his kindness keeps my shoes from wearing out. And he keeps giving me the same old bird meat over and over again to eat and some weird bread to have. And he has to knock open a rock so I can have something to drink. And that's the full reality of my existence until I meet him in glory one day. Then so be it. The longing of my heart should not be all the good things of this world. Because most of the time, the good things of this world are tainted with the evil that I want God to protect me from. I should long to see God's face. And to so see his face that when people see my face, they see a reflection of the face of God. That's it. And so, friend, I ask you the really hard question I had to ask myself this week. What are you longing for? What are you working toward? What are you putting all of your energy into? Is it all the easygoing creature comfort, outward blessings? Look at how great God has blessed my life things. Or is it true intimacy with God? That's what David wanted. He's the king of Israel. Could have anything he wanted. And when he was walking rightly with God, the only thing he wanted was to see 
God's face. That's it. When he wasn't walking rightly with God. Well, we know how that went. He wanted to see some faces, but it wasn't God's face. He wanted to see some things. He wanted to have some things and he wanted to feel some things, but it was not the abiding presence of the Lord. And when David was seeking the face of God, you know what? He gets to write Psalms like this one. Look at me in my heart and see that there's nothing evil there. And when David is looking for something that's not the face of God, you know what he gets to write? He gets to write Psalm 54 and 52. Against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. The outworking is really different. The evil person only sees what they can have right now. They only work for and long what they can have right now. Their satisfaction is instantaneous. Instant gratification. For the righteous man, for the believer, there is delayed gratification. I'm longing for something greater than what this world has to offer. I don't care what this world says it will give to me. I just want Jesus. And it's in moments like that, friend, that we find refuge in the right hand of God. And that he protects us from evil. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for promising to protect us from evil. Father, do not let us be distracted by the things of this world. Do not let us have the spirit of the wicked man. The one who desires to reach whatever end through any means necessary. Do not let us be as those who speak proudly. Those who keep the best parts for ourselves. Those who surround and press down and throw down on others. But Father, instead, keep us, hide us, deliver us from Satan, from the powers of darkness, from those who are enemies of the gospel, from ourselves. Father, help us like your servant David, who under the inspiration of the Spirit gave us these words. Help us to have only one true great longing in our lives, to behold your face in righteousness. Father, forgive us when our longing and our desire is placed elsewhere. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.